1: Have you ever wondered what would change if you could rewind your life and redo one small moment? It's a theme explored in the 1998 movie Sliding Doors, starring Gwyneth Paltrow as two versions of the same woman, one who catches the train and comes home to her cheating partner, and one who doesn't. Helen?
2: I had just caught that train. i had been home ages ago. Oh, you don't want to go wondering about things like that. Now, Helen's life is about to go down two different tracks.
1: <laughs> trailer. <laughs> how can one fluke change everything? That's what that movie asks. but it happens in rom-coms, of course. It's also the theme of a new book by social scientist Brian Kloss, all about how tiny chance moments can divert our lives and even have a serious set of global consequences. After the break, we're joined by Brian to talk about his book and how all of us could benefit from acknowledging that the world is chaotic and uncertain and why in an interconnected world, Everything we do matters. I'm Todd Zwillick in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Take a chance and stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. Take a chance, stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps Podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Why is
2: everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, There's some interesting pessimism about our modern world, and that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.
1: With NPR+, Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator.
0: It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome.
1: And with NPR+, Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Joining us from London is Brian Kloss. He's a professor of global politics at University College London. A reminder, his new book is Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Brian, welcome to 1A. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, Brian, at the start of the book, you tell us you're alive because of a fluke, albeit a tragic one. What's that story?
0: Yeah, so it's a story from 1905 in a little place called Keeler, Wisconsin, about a woman named Clara Maudlin Jansen. And she had four young children. I think the oldest was five years old. And she had a mental breakdown and snapped and and tragically decided to take the lives of her own kids and then take her own life. And so her husband came home in this unbelievably horrific moment uh, where his whole family was wiped out. And the reason I I write about this in the opening to Fluke is because this was my great-grandfather's first wife. And uh, he remarried later on to my great-grandmother, and eventually that creates the lineage that leads to me. And I didn't know about this until I was in my mid-20s when my dad sat me down and and told me this story of this dark chapter in the family history. And of course, you're, you're sort of overwhelmed by it at first, but then you also have this realization that you wouldn't exist but for this horrible, macabre mass murder. And the really bewildering thing is, you know, everyone listening to my voice also would not be listening to it if those kids hadn't died in Wisconsin 119 years ago. And I think the, the notion that is part of my work as a social scientist as well is thinking about, you know, why do things happen? And I think often we have these really neat and tidy stories we like to tell ourselves about the way the world works. But in a quite literal sense, part of the reason you and I are speaking right now is because of a tragic mass murder in rural Wisconsin at the turn of the uh, 19th into the 20th century.
1: I mean, in my own case – My parents, I suppose, never, ever would have met if one of them had decided to stay home from summer camp that summer when they met at the age of 17 or if the other – if my dad's alternate job as a lifeguard at the pool in the Bronx had come through instead of the summer camp job, as simple as that.
0: Yeah, I mean this is the thing is the, the more that I talk about this with people the more that everyone has a story like this. And so I think that what's what's really perplexing to me, it's part of the reason why I wrote the book, is I think all of us intuitively understand that small stuff matters. And yet so much of our world is built on exactly the opposite mentality, right? All of the models we use to explain social change in economics or in politics, all of the sort of smart thinkers tell you, you know, focus on the signal and ignore the noise. And the argument in fluke is basically that for our lives and our for our societies, through chaos theory, The noise really matters. It's highly consequential. It's where moments of our lives shift in ways that ultimately redirect our pathway through through our journey in life. But also our societies end up prone to these shocks that are produced by small, sometimes even random events that that upend everything.
1: Well, your book also has – examples of big things from world history. Here's one. The United States bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, of course, consequential, killing more than 200,000 people, bringing the Pacific campaign and World War II to a close. But Kyoto was spared because the U.S. Secretary of War had vacationed in Kyoto with his wife 19 years before, and he didn't want the city on the target list so tell us about some of these big moments in history that in hindsight, you know, could have just been completely different but for this tiny detail.
0: Yeah. So the the Kyoto story also has a second part to it, which is that the Nagasaki bomb was supposed to go to a place called Kokura. And the bomber approached the city and there was briefly cloud cover. And so it circled and then went to its secondary target of Nagasaki. So the reasons why these two cities ended up getting bombed were partly a 19-year-old vacation that a, a government official took and a cloud. Now, there's other stories. One of the ones that a lot of people have probably heard is the sort of moment when the Archduke Franz Ferdinand gets assassinated as the trigger for World War I, and his car sort of sputters to a stop by accident right in front of his would-be assassin who then shoots him. One of the things I came across in my research is a different story from several months before that where that same Archduke went on a hunting expedition to England, and there was this fresh coat of snow in the estate at Welbeck Abbey where they were hunting and the guy loading the gun slipped on the snow and the bullet shot within about 3 inches of the archduke's head and almost killed him and you, you, i don't know what would have happened with world war 1 but if he had died before he was assassinated it's certain it would that would not have been the trigger for the onset of the great war right and so one of the things that i like to think about is that even these small tweaks about how you know world events can unfold if it's a slight difference it's going to unfold differently and and that's the thing that i think is so difficult for us to grasp because our, our brains latch on to the idea of order and imposition of patterns and so on. And I think it's, it's, it's not accurate to say that everything is a neat and tidy story. But a lot of history, a lot of politics, a lot of economics is built on trying to cram the messiness of the world mm. into this sort of neat and tidy narrative that makes sense to all of us.
1: I mean I think it's intuitive to most of us in a way that small events can drive things even if we ignore them. I mean if the motorcade had been going a little faster in Dealey Plaza – Lee Harvey Oswald's shot might have missed, right? Or if the technician on the space shuttle Challenger had made that phone call to say don't launch because the O-rings are frozen, they might never have launched. He didn't make that phone call. I I think that's all intuitive to us in a way, Brian, but how does it help us? Why should we attend to the smallness, the randomness of these big things instead of reading history in the large strokes as we tend to do?
0: Yeah. So I I think that flukes have always mattered for history. I think what's different today is that we've engineered a world where we're more prone to them. So what I mean by that is that you have sort of a, a system that we've designed that is at its absolute limit. And that means that the small noise can play a bigger effect. So if you think about like the history of hunter-gatherers and the long stretch of human history, pretty much everybody who used to exist hundreds of thousands of years ago dealt with uncertainty in their daily life, You know, whether they would get eaten by a predator or whether they'd starve to death. But like the world didn't change that much from parents to children, and parents could teach children about technology rather than the reverse as we have today. right? So the world was basically stable. If you knew how to hunt and you knew how to gather, you could teach your kids how to live in that world. What we've now designed is a, flip, a total inversion of that dynamic. So what we have is day-to-day certainty, day-to-day stability where, you know, we can go to Starbucks anywhere in the world, get the same drink, <laughs> we can order something off Amazon, no one it's going to come to our house. But the world is constantly being bombarded with these shocks that are upending our lives. So I I have a line in the book where I say, you know, we've engineered this world where Starbucks is unchanging, but rivers are drying up and democracies are collapsing. And I think, you know, th- the reason that's happening is because we have hubris that we believe we can control the world. So we're optimizing to the absolute limit. And a great example of how this has happened is the Suez Canal getting blocked by a single boat two two <laughs> two and a half years ago. <laughs> yeah. right? like a, a gust of wind twists the boat sideways and it caused $54 billion in damage. And that just was never possible before because we never engineered systems where these small bits of noise could be so consequential for so many people so fast.
1: If I were a social scientist like you, I might I might give up given all these contingencies, you know?
0: Yeah, no, so I describe myself as a disillusioned social scientist in the book. And it's not because I don't believe in social science. I believe very strongly in it. I wouldn't have my life to it otherwise. But I think that there is a, a limit to what we can understand and predict and control. And I think when we set that limit at the absolute maximum and delude ourselves into believing, yes, we understand this complex world. Yes, we can manipulate it however we see fit. We actually engineer catastrophes more often. And so I think it's more useful for us to recognize the limits of our understanding, design a little bit more slack into our systems, a little bit less optimization and efficiency to the absolute maximum, and make it less likely that these things will will create cascades.
1: I mean, I hear you. I totally hear you. And I think that that would be great, but we need the feeling of control. We need the optimization, right? I mean, it seems like every single bit of inertia in our Social and technological lives is is geared in the opposite direction of what you're advising here
0: yeah I, I I will say I'm swimming against the cultural stream in this because you know I think about sort of the way that I was steeped in American culture growing up and sort of this aspect of individualism hitting you over the head, right nothing about interconnection really it's sort of it's all up to you, and also you get this endless supply of life hacks and efficiency tools and a checklist that gives rise to another checklist and so on. And it's all about squeezing the last ounce of inefficiency out of your life, right? Now, that's a really good strategy if you know exactly what's right for you. But I submit that we don't always know exactly what's right for us. I mean, I think a lot of people listening will have had moments in their life where something has gone a little bit wrong, but it's actually opened a new door that's turned out better. Or they've had an experiment that they've tried and it's actually panned out really, really well. And I think if you accept uncertainty and you sort of Jettison the control. And I have this line I, I go to back and uh, re- I repeat over and over in the book where I say we control nothing, but we influence everything. If you have that mentality, you start to experiment more. You start to try things a little bit more. And that creates you know, a sort of aspect where you end up getting to a better path for yourself. So I think some of this stuff, it's about a mindset shift that actually tells you, look, it's okay if you don't have every checklist uh, in, in your daily life. It's okay if you don't have a fully optimized existence. I actually think that mentality is making a lot of us unhappy And it's probably not the best
1: way to to, to drift through life. Brian, I can tell you about a job interview I had as a younger reporter many, many years ago, a job I really, really wanted at a major, very famous news outlet. I was young and eager, and I went in there in the middle of the interview, and the face of the editor went blank as he was talking to me because I had a stream of blood streaming down the front of my face because I had cut myself shaving before I went in there, very small cut, but I was so nervous that I bled. He was sympathetic, but I didn't get the job. And I can tell you without going through the whole story that me not getting that job is the reason I'm sitting here on the air talking to you today. Had I gotten that job, I can very much see in the path of my career I would not have been here.
0: Yeah, so this is the thing that I think everyone has these sliding doors moments. And I I think what's really bewildering about them is that only a very small slice of them are ones that we're aware of. So I I coined this term in the book where I describe what's called the snooze button effect, which is where you wake up one morning and you're a little groggy and you slap the snooze button. And then you imagine your life rewinds five seconds and you decide, no, actually, I'm going to get up. Your life is going to unfold differently in that moment. Like the trajectory of your life, you will meet different people if you leave the house five minutes later. You will have different conversations. You might get in a car accident. But the thing is you will never see the alternative pathway. That's the way our lives unfold. We only get one vision of the path that we're actually on. And so I think what's really bewildering and sometimes overwhelming to think about but is scientifically true if you consider the logic of it is that every single thing that we're doing is diverting our pathway in some way, big or small. And, I, you know, I think this is something where uh, we, we all do intuitively understand this logic, but so much of our lives we're told the opposite. You know, the noise doesn't matter. Don't sweat the small stuff. And, and I think you don't need to obsess about it, but I think it's also really awe-inspiring to understand that there is a ripple effect from every action that we take, and it produces chains of events that can sometimes manifest in atomic bombs getting dropped in one city than another or can manifest in ways that upend the world. And I think this is the kind of stuff where an appreciation for it just – it let's us understand the world a little bit better and navigate it a little more effectively.
1: Blowing my mind a little bit, Brian Kloss, You're starting to make me realize that all of the big stuff that I really, really worry about every day might matter a lot less than the randoms we're talking about. The new book, Fluke, a lot more, including Free Will. It's coming up in just a moment.
2: Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling, trying to find humanity, or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent, when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A, But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your
1: podcasts. Only from NPR. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training
2: GPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime.
1: Tech's climate conundrum—that's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. All right, Brian, everything we do matters, but I've held off for as long as I can. Here, let's let's talk about free will. You write about a world where unrelated events swirl in a complex symphony that really, in the end, does govern. Our lives governs which baby gets born as opposed to another one because of a one millisecond difference. Even the smallest little thing, the honeymoon of a secretary of war or hitting the snooze bar can change the entire course of our lives. So Brian, does free will exist? Is it even a thing?
0: Yeah, so I I don't believe in free will, but a lot of this is sort of a definitional debate in some ways. So the question basically boils down to, for me, do I have independent control of my actions and thoughts separately from the physical matter in my body? And linguistically, we, we, we imagine the answer is yes, because we have two different words for these things, right? We call one thing the mind and one thing the brain. And for someone like me, there's no difference. The mind is the brain. There's no special magical property that is within my head that is separate from the physical matter in my brain. And if I can't control cell division or if I can't control chemical processes in my brain – I wonder how can I control my individual thoughts, which are being produced physically by by my brain structures. It doesn't mean I can't make decisions. Of course I make decisions all the time. I'm free to pursue my preferences. So I have preferences that I like and I pursue them. The question is basically to me, can I choose my preferences? Can I choose the way that my brain is going to think about these ideas? And it's a complex interplay of – genetics, upbringing, nature, nurture, all these things which fuse into a specific physical structure that I have right now, that in my view is going to inevitably cause me to answer your question this way. <laughs> but the, the, you know, the, the question though is is one that is, it's, it's befuddled many, many, many very smart people. For it makes of a years. lot
1: of us extremely uncomfortable. I mean, I can, yeah. I can appreciate, in fact, I believe in the notion that if our thoughts and our actions arise from little signals in our, in our synapses, one signal from one brain cell to another. I have no control over that. I don't choose how the synapses fire. They tell me what to do, not the other way around. And a lot of people are very uncomfortable with this. Leo wants to talk about free will and says, "Wait, if we don't have free will, then nothing we do matters, not everything. So please explain that contradiction, Brian. Yeah,
0: so there's a question about the origin of human behavior and its consequences. And the origin of some of our behavior I think is physically controlled, but I don't think that that means it's meaningless. I think one of the things that's amazing about chaos theory, which I write about in Fluke, is that there's ripple effects that sort of reverberate through history in the lives of other people that you'll never know or never meet. I mean the the, the story I told you at the beginning of how I'm the byproduct of a mass murder, that was one chaotic reverberation that produced me in this conversation. And so what I think about is regardless of sort of the origin of it, right, whether I can control it independently from my brain or not, I'm still acting as an agent. And the way I act has consequences for people's lives. It has consequences for how people think about things. And therefore, I feel really privileged to be part of that. And so I think there's sort of an initial reaction that some people have, which is nihilism, that sort of nothing matters. I find it unbelievably lucky that I have happened to exist And that I get to be part of this sort of 13.7 billion year story of the universe and a small part of how it unfolds. And I think that's something that's really, to me, very beautiful and awe-inspiring to think about existence even if I can't independently control cell division or chemical processes in my brain.
1: This is exactly a thing that I was thinking Mm -hmm. about while reading your book. So much of the book is about the fundamental lack of control that we really have. Over the world around us and over the course of our own lives. And yet we don't want to live in a world where we feel like things are out of control. I mean, we should vote and choose decent leaders. We should be kind to children and protect them. Right. And there's there is that contradiction there and the and just the sort of beautiful dichotomy that I think we have to be aware of.
0: The way I've thought about this is that, of course, it's the case that there are reverberations that might be good or bad from any individual action. I mean, the fact that the most joyful moments in my life is partly derived from children dying uh, is something that is 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 both terrible and true. But it also means that you shouldn't go out and kill children, right? There's no, there's no way in which that that is the lesson from the story because on balance, it creates a much worse world. It's probabilistically going to create a much worse world. The same way that you go out and plant a tree, maybe in three generations, a kid falls off of it and dies. You should still plant the tree, right? So I, I think the, the the point that I think about with this philosophically is that giving up a little bit of control and focusing instead on influence – liberates you to sort of just enjoy life a little bit more. I mean, it, it's it's a somewhat banal observation, but, you know, I think I basically feel like a cosmic accident. I feel like I'm sort of an arbitrary existence that could have very easily not happened. And therefore, if I don't have a cosmic purpose, then maybe what I'm supposed to do on, on the planet is sort of enjoy life and try to spend time with people I care about and make other people's lives a little bit better. And like Maybe that's everything, right? And I think there's a lot of people who answer that question differently. They have a viewpoint that control comes from God, but they end up in a position where they come to the same conclusion, that maybe they don't have independent control over their lives because God is is calling the shots. But they still are, therefore, an agent that has purpose in the world because their effects of their actions matter. And I And I think this is the kind of question that a lot of us are – sort of distracted from because so many of the problems we deal with in daily life bring us away from the big questions about what it is to be a human. And those mysteries are still very open. I mean, I'm, I'm not pretending that I have the answer. I, I'm trying to suggest here's my way of solving the puzzle and hoping that people who read the book will solve it in their own way.
1: Well, it is potentially very liberating to wrap your head around that notion that you just described, which is understanding that you are a fortunate, maybe an unfortunate, or simply just a a, a completely uh, inert result of the universe, and you can just enjoy it while you're here. All right, let's step away from free will for just a moment. We had to do it because it's really one of the one of the currents running underneath this book. You write about black swan events. We've heard about those big events in history. They have this name, black swan events. Give us give us an example of of what those are and why they matter to the thesis here?
0: Yeah, so a black swan event is something that is highly rare, unpredictable, and consequential. And one of the ones that I think is worth considering, and this is where I bring in this this idea from physics called the sandpile model, is the Arab Spring. So the Arab Spring starts with a man who lights himself on fire in central Tunisia. He's a vegetable seller. He just sells vegetables and he gets angry and sets himself on fire. And it triggers the downfall of multiple regimes and triggers the Syrian civil war, which leads to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Now, the sand pile model is very simple to understand as a metaphor. So you imagine you just drop grains of sand over and over and over into a pile. Eventually, the pile will get so tall that a single grain of sand can cause an avalanche. And what I'm arguing is that basically modern social systems have built – tall sand piles into the basic ideology of how the system should work. So we try to bring the sand pile to its absolute possible limit, the most efficient, most optimal way. And then we're surprised continually when one grain of sand, one fluke, causes the avalanche. And I think about, you know, the 21st century, if I think about the historic events that have shaped the last 25 years, I mean, we had 9-11 and then the financial crisis and then the Arab Spring and then the rise of Trump and Brexit and then a pandemic sparked by a single person getting infected by one mutation of one virus in China. You know, I mean, these, there's a series of calamities that we often describe as external shocks. And what I'm arguing in the book is that we've actually designed systems that are less resilient to those so that the sand pile is so tall that if we made it a little bit less tall, not not, you know, not existent, but just a little bit less tall, that each grain of sand, the noise of life would have less likelihood of triggering this catastrophic avalanche.
1: What does a less tall sand pile in the case of the Arab Spring look like then? I mean, the, the, it's so hard to see the world other than how it exists. The man in Tunisia lit himself on fire and that's history. What would an alternate telling with a with a more sturdy sand pile have looked like?
0: Great question. So if you think about this, we, we live partly between order and disorder and trends and sort of you know fluke events. Now, if somebody in central Norway lights themselves on fire tomorrow, it's not going to trigger a mass civil war or the regime's downfall. And that's because the sandpile was tall in the Middle East because people were angry at their governments, right? So they basically had pushed the people to the absolute limit such that one little spark of this guy lighting himself on fire triggered this massive conflagration across the entire region. And so what my argument is, is basically, that you have systems that create, you know, brittleness, basically, you, you, you become brittle, because everyone's really angry in the Middle East. And then all of a sudden, the sand pile can be can be triggered this way. One concrete example of how you deal with this was there was a there's a power grid in a Latin American country, I believe it's Chile, where they decided to have something that was more expensive and less efficient, but it was decoupled from the national grid. So if one part of the system failed, it would only be in that little local area, right? And it was more expensive, it was less efficient. But when there was a blackout, it was very, very small. And so it's trying to think about resilience and containing catastrophe, which is basically something I think a lot of our leaders have have sometimes uh, taken their eye off the ball with.
1: Well, Brian, we talk about the sandpile of history of world events and the sturdiness of it when you put that one more grain of sand on that of that random chance that can collapse it. In our age of AI and conspiracy theories and technology-driven Sand piles. Does 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 more connectedness mean more opportunities for chaos? Is the is the sand pile taller and shakier now than ever before?
0: Yes, unfortunately, I, I think it is, and I think AI is going to embed some of this risk into the world. So, what I described previously, where hunter gatherers lived, in sort of the same kind of world, cause and effect operated in roughly the same way throughout that entire period, right? We live in a period now where cause and effect relationships are shifting faster than ever before. And all the listeners will know this because you hear something like, oh, there was a hundred-year flood. And then you think to yourself, well, why was there another hundred-year flood every three years now? It's the underlying dynamics of the climate system have shifted, right? So those those sort of uh, dynamics we used to appreciate have now changed. This is important for AI because it's trained on patterns of the past. The training data for machine learning and AI looks at how things worked in the past, and then it derives a series of relationships and predicts the future. And the problem is that sometimes the relationships are actually changing. It's a concept in economics called non-stationarity. But it basically means that we're in a period in human history which I think is unique – where the world is changing the underlying dynamics faster than ever before. I mean, I grew up without the internet, and now it's indispensable. And so the the sort of framework for which our, our world is, is, is built within is shifting. And that's where I, I worry about putting too much emphasis on AI models, especially on critical systems. They'll be very, very good for things like diagnosing medical problems and closed systems and so on. But I don't think we should turn over that much management of the economy, for example, to AI-driven algorithms that
1: could end up producing catastrophic risk. Because they are not building sturdy systems when you look at it from this point of view. It's fascinating. We got this message from Jenna in Chicago.
2: So sometime in like 2018, I was working as a bartender. I was working the lunch shift. I was waiting on this guy that was wearing a shirt that said Schlepp on it. And I asked him, what's Schlepp?
1: Turns out Schlepp is this great little moving company in Chicago And I ended up working for them part-time, starting out part-time, then full-time later on, delivering furniture in the city and suburbs with a great team of guys. I was the only woman working there. This made me realize I wanted to take my driving to another level, so I ended up getting a CDL and becoming an
2: over-the-road truck driver. I'm a person who used to be terrified to drive a car in the city, and now I drive a semi all over the country.
1: (laughs) Well, Brian... From those listeners, we hear these stories of interconnectedness. It occurs to me that on the technological, on the AI level, you think that too much interconnectedness could be a dangerous thing. And on the personal level, the level of driving your car in the Florida Keys or being open to a T-shirt that says "schlep," we should really be more open to it, to embrace the randomness of life.
0: Yeah, I think I think it, the lesson in our personal lives is to experiment and enjoy the uncertainty. I think uncertainty is actually something that in some contexts can be wonderful. I mean if you were told there's a 66% chance that you're going to marry this person when you were born, it would take a lot of the joy out of life. I mean there's a lot of the sort of rich moments of life come from those unexpected flukes. I think when it comes to AI and technology, we just have to be careful not to be overly hubristic about our ability to control what I think is basically an uncontrollable world that's beyond the complexity that we can actually understand and that we're going to get ourselves into avoidable catastrophes if we try to contain everything into a model that has you know, five or six key variables to explain the complexity of eight billion interacting people in an unimaginably complex world
1: that we should all celebrate. Well, Stuart in Michigan gets the last word. Stuart says, The fluke that changed our lives occurred many, many years ago, 35 miles from home, when the young lady in line ahead of me at Kmart Photo Center turned around and said, Am I crazy or what? She was talking about her desire to have enlargements made of all her recent Utah vacation photos. And I suggested that a nearby store offered larger standard photos— And we went our separate ways, but something about her and our chance meeting stuck with me. We met again a little over a week later, this time not by chance but through my determination to see her again. And with the help of several people and a note I left her at the photo center of the other store, we now have several beautiful children. That's the randomness. And that's the last word. Brian Kloss is a professor of global politics at University College London, author of Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Brian, thanks so much.
0: Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Today's producer was not random at all. She was Anna Casey. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwilligan for Jen White. This is 1A.
2: Tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories.
1: I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here.
2: Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth...